Deo Valente, James chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. James 4, 13. As we look at this passage, I think it is important for us to remember that there's nothing listed in this passage that's sinful itself. It's not what they are doing in this illustration that James gives. It's what they have not done. Invictus. This is a poem that was read and were the last words of Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma terrorist bomber. When asked what his last words would be, this is what he turned in to be read before the world. And uh, Of course, Timothy McVeigh was a self-proclaimed atheist. I did think it was interesting that right before they gave him uh, the injection that he asked for the last rite. So... Uh, he was a self-proclaimed atheist for most of his life. But these were his final words. Invictus. It means Latin for unconquered. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the failed clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bulging of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall be find me not afraid. It matters not how straight the gate, an allusion to Jesus' quote of straight is the gate and narrow is the road, How charged with punishments in the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. If there is a better example of what it means to be self-theistic, self-governing, to begin the God of your own life, I don't know what it is. And while those words may have seemed bold before he left... I promise you, 30 minutes after he handed this out, he would probably love to have retracted. He would then realize that he was not the captain of his soul. James, the earliest New Testament book that we have, writes this letter to men and women who had now trusted Christ, but some In this apparent economy, even in that day, the Jews were very successful in business. And many economies and nations and nationalities welcomed them to come in and set up their business because it equated money. And many of these middle class businessmen and maybe even upper class businessmen had began to make money and began to make plans and nothing wrong with planning. Nothing wrong with planning for our future, planning for our education, planning for retirement, planning for savings, planning for different things. God endorses that throughout His Word. But the problem here was they were making plans and leaving God out of the equation. And James speaks to them. And this is what James says to those businessmen who were proceeding and not with anything wrong, but simply leaving God out of their decision-making process, out of their future. 
Now listen, and this is a Old Testament prophecy term that the prophets used to use. It was a imperative. Now listen very strongly. He is calling attention to his readers. He says, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. You who say, hey, I'm going over here to this country or this city. I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go make a bundle. And I'm going to go make the money and I'll come back to my family when this is all done. But here's where I'm headed to. This is what I'm going to do. And he says this. He says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You really think that that's what's going to happen? You're not promised that. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know if your ship's going to sail. He goes on and he says this. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Your translation may use the word vapor. You are a vapor that exists today, but then is gone. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will. Now this... Translation is written in the Greek, but the Latin is Deo Valente, if God wills. We see Paul use that expression over and over again in his travels. And he will be in one city and will promise to come back if God wills, if God allows. And he moves on and he says this, If God wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. You are a self-made man. You look at it from the perspective that you've not only made it, you've earned it and you deserved it. It's all about you. All such boasting is evil. And anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Anyone who knows and has opportunity to bless to make an impact, but moves on ahead without God to simply endure or expand the flesh, he said, has missed it. Again, there's nothing that they're doing that's inherently wrong. It's what we're not doing. Most of us in our faith, as we've talked about before, always find ourselves in one extreme. One extreme might be is Christianity is all about commission. It's all about what I do. It's trying to do good things and do things right. And that's what faith is. And others will come over to this extreme and they'll think, Christianity and my faith is about the things that I don't do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go out with girls that do. And somehow that makes me really godly for all these things that I don't do. And the real truth of it is, is it's not either extreme. It's, it's both. It's following the heart of God. And there are some things that he specifically laid out in Scripture that I should avoid. And I should seek to stay away from. And I do want to do deeds. And I do want to encourage people. But it's about loving Him. And everything else is an overflow. It's when I recognize I begin and I end with God Almighty in mind. 
in His leadership in my life. So it's not the prohibition of planning. It's not that making money is wrong. It's a necessity. It's what our life becomes. And we usually begin to make errors when we do these things with grace. When we first receive Christ, we receive His grace and forgiveness, we experience grace. But then for many of us, the next step is this. We start to become accustomed to grace. And then we begin to expect grace. And then we believe we deserve grace. I believe I deserve the blessings of life. started off that we were just thankful for all that God has done and all that He's given. And then we think, okay, I'm accustomed to this. I expect it. And matter of fact, I deserve it. I deserve blessings. I deserve the grace of God. It should always be upon me, and I'm mad if it's not there. That leads us to make some fairly serious errors. How we become the captain of our soul, or we become, in a sense, practical agnostics. Oh, we believe in God, and we believe He certainly exists. It's just that we don't believe He really has anything to do with our life, nor maybe even should He at this point. It's the error of acting independently. And James is talking about that. Acting independently of the Spirit of God. Planning our lives and going about our lives without allowing God to lead and impact our lives. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart, but God's counsel will stand. The error of omitting God altogether. Believing that He exists, but that He really practically has nothing to do with my life. Number two, the error of presuming upon the mercies of God. Being presumptive. Making a plan and having an idea and I'm just going to attach God onto it as I go. God bless this. I'm headed out. I'm moving on. Not stopping to pray and seek the heart of God and the impact it has on those that have been entrusted to me upon the kingdom of God itself. It's interesting, in Psalms 90, Moses wrote that psalm. It's the oldest psalm found in the Bible. Moses says that our lives are 60 and 10 or 70 years, and it's remarkably accurate even at this point. As Moses was speaking there, he was a man who had did a lot of funerals. I mean, he probably spent the last 20 or 30 years of his life simply doing funerals because of those who were not ready to go into the promised land, and over the next 40 years they died as they wandered. And Moses, a man doing funerals, learned very vividly the importance of not presuming upon the mercies of God. The blessings and the, and the grace that we've been given today is not always promised for tomorrow. We celebrate it. We give thanks today. But it's not necessarily because we deserve it. It's because God has chosen to bless us. And when those times are not existing, it's not because we're not getting what we deserve. It's not because God has forgotten. Often it's because we have forgotten the importance of giving thanks and recognizing where those blessings come from in the first place. The air of taking credit 
for the blessings that God has given. He says, as it is, you boast and brag. You are a self-made man. You've made your money. You've made your business. You take full credit. You think you've done it all your way. It's You're the captain of the soul. If it wasn't for you, it wouldn't be here. And while true, God allowed you to play a part, it still all comes divinely from His hand. And when we cease to recognize that, we become a practical agnostic. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Psalms 52.7 said, Here is a man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of riches and strengthened himself in wickedness. In Luke 12.15, Jesus says, Watch out, be on guard, for a man's life does not consist merely in the abundance of riches. We can say what we want, but the primary message that our world tells us today is get stuff. And you're successful. You're at the best if you can get a lot of stuff. You're important if you have a lot of things. A lot of stuff. And people can go, ah, see that? See that house? See that car? And we think, yeah. I'm I'm hot. I'm something. I worked hard to get those things. And we forget the Spirit of God who giveth grace to the proud, giveth grace unto the humble, but He resisteth the proud. And if we let ourselves go long enough, we'll find ourselves enraptured in that thought process and become that man or woman that we begin to boast and brag. In verse 17, he says, who knows or at least knew what good he ought to do, but yet doesn't do it. Because I found myself trapped and believing that in muchness of stuff comes the significance of life. This is exactly what James is addressing here. In Isaiah chapter 14, Satan listed five I am's, five I wills, five presumptions that ultimately led to his fall. And we see in this passage five I wills. Again, is it wrong to be successful? No. The real truth of it is God wants us to make money so we can take care of ourselves and our families, so that we can bless others. It's also used to test us, and it's used to glorify the kingdom. But recognize, it's always the purpose of us, of God allowing us to use it. Recognizing it is from His hand. It should not define us or make us. So what do we do? How do we deo valente? How do we include God? How do we let God lead us when we come to these forks in the roads, when there are decisions to make in life, where I should live, what I should do, who I should marry, what job should I take? Well, we start in a very obvious place. We start in prayer. We stop and we seek the heart of God and we pray and we ask, God, what will glorify you? 
What will bring you the most honor? How can I bring you the most glory? Next we seek godly counsel. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 15.22, Plans fail for a lack of advisors, but much through much counsel they succeed. You know, a good understanding or a good picture that we've become the captain of our own soul, that we've become self-theistic, is when we no longer seek counsel. Now, here's not what I'm not telling. I'm not telling you that somebody else is supposed to make your decisions. I'm not saying that sometimes, most of the time, you don't have to make the decision yourself. You do. But when it comes to the significant, important decisions of life, who are you getting godly counsel from? Who are you asking? And they are not necessarily God's will. That's not what I'm suggesting. But sometimes we get so consumed with ourselves that we become blind to the needs that are right before us. Sometimes we don't recognize the impact it's having on our spouse or our children or those around us. And it's necessary for us to seek godly counsel so that we might stay balanced and focused on what's really important. Sometimes we simply become blind to the things that are most important in life. And through godly counsel, we can become more aware. Next, we walk softly before the Lord. The Bible tells us the importance of walking softly before God. And what does that mean, to walk softly before God? Here's what it means. It means to listen. To listen, to be in a spirit when that small, still voice is speaking. When that voice says, no. When that voice says, stop. When that voice says, be still. One of the families last week that we shared talked about how they had this great opportunity, but as they were really praying in the last moment, God just shut the door and they realized that they couldn't move forward. And it was just four days later that he lost his job that's an example of walking softly before God. God, I've, I've prayed and I've sought your heart and this looks like a good opportunity and I'm, I'm going this direction. But if this is not the way to go, then close the door or give me more information. And I'm going to listen. I'm going to be flexible. When we come to that place where we go, no, I'm moving ahead and I don't care what it says. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm moving ahead. That is that brash that boasting. Again, some decisions are going to be hard, and sometimes decisions are not going to be popular. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting, are you willing to listen? Are you willing to consider? And are you willing to be still and take time before God and hear His voice? Sometimes He speaks through His words. Sometimes He speaks through prayer. Sometimes He speaks through others. Sometimes He says, hush and be still for a while. I want to give you five, or excuse me, four principles for our life. And these are very common, very simple. You've all heard them before. But as we look at our lives, how do we define who we are? How do we become what we are? How do we set plans and goals to become that man or that woman who follows the heart of God? Principles that define our life. Number one, what is the objective for our life? When we get to the end of our life, what is our objective? What do we want to have accomplished? As a follower of Christ, I want, to, I want this to be said. I want to stand before God and I want to hear Him say, 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to know that I have impacted the kingdom. And if that's my objective, and if that happens to be your objective as well, then what does that mean? That means I have to make decisions today that will lead to that conclusion. I have to make some priorities today. In other words, how badly do I want that to happen? I have to set some priorities with how I spend my time, with where I spend my money and where I, uh, where I spend my opportunities. Priorities. So your objectives, and then what are your priorities? Number three, your schedule. How will you maintain those priorities? A lot of times people have goals. And they just write them down. I remember when I was that all the time. You know, goals in high school, and you write these things down. And then I, I'd like lose them before I got out of class. You know what I mean? Because I didn't have a priority, and I certainly didn't have a schedule. How am I going to do that? I, I'll give you an example. And some of you will probably be surprised at this. But I, I do most of my sermon preparation on Monday. I will usually read the text on Sunday night. And then on Monday, it is my goal to have an outline done before I get through. And the reason I do that, because I want that to be a priority. Because here's, here's the deal. I'm not as sharp as some of you. If I try to do it on Saturday, most of you will just get up and walk out. I mean, because it won't be that good. That's just the real truth of it. And some of you are thinking, you've been working on this all week. Uh, thank you very much. But seriously, I start, on, I start on Monday and I try to get an outline done. And then the rest of the week, I can put in illustrations and do background work. Why? Because I think it's important, the words that I speak here on Sunday morning. So I schedule that in. Sometimes I have to schedule and say, you know what, at this time of day, I'm going to be with my family. Uh, and these days, I'm going to do this. This is going to be scheduled. And so that means I say no a lot of times. A lot of times people will ask me to do something at this point, and I just say no. And I used to go into this big explanation. Now I just say no. Because I've decided this is a priority. There are some things that I'm going to have to do in my relationship with Christ. Here's some things I'm going to have to do with my job. Here's some things I'm going to do with my family. And if I don't schedule them, then I will let the tyranny of the urgent rule my life. Whatever comes up here, whatever comes up there, and I'll just be wandering around. You probably have never worked with anyone like that who just kind of goes from thing to thing and whatever, whoever says, whoever calls at that moment. You know, this isn't part of the sermon and isn't even really biblical. But here's a challenge for some of you. And I realize some of you, you work, this would be a non-work day. You ought to try this on a non-work day. You ought to try turning your phone off for a day. Um, as some of you know, I've been having back problems for the last few weeks, and it's really altered my perspective. Like today I looked at my phone message and noticed I had nine messages, and I hadn't even thought to check my phone in the last two days. You know, that was really a, that's really been good for me because sometimes I can become attached to my little cell phone. I can let it begin to dictate my life. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's email. Maybe it's whatever. But as you look at your relationship with Christ, and as we start to make statements like, I don't have time. Boy, I wish I had time to study. I wish I had time to take Monday and prepare a message. The real truth of it is we make time for what's most important in our lives. And that's really the fourth step. It's discipline. Discipline. Am I going to discipline myself in how I spend my time? I wish I had time to pray. Most of you drive. What if you made your car, non-kid time, your kind of sanctuary where you say, I'm going to pray. When I'm alone in the car, I'm going to pray. Some of you exercise. You go walking. You know what? I'm not going to listen to Pearl Jam at this point. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk. Some of you are going, Pearl who? Uh, 
just gave my age away by But it's easy if we start to look. There are things that we do. We watch television. We read newspapers. We have entertainment. There's time. The question is, are we prioritizing? Are we disciplining ourselves to take advantage of the opportunities to spend time with God and to develop our faith? So what are those disciplines? What should they be? Number one, a daily intake of God's Word. One of the reasons that we provide a little devotional out there for you is so that at least for two minutes you can say, Here's a tool. I'm going to commit two minutes a day. And I hope you're doing more than that. But there's a great place to start. Number two, another discipline is access to God through prayer, as we just talked about. Making a time, dedicating a time of my day where I'm going to pray. And not just that, where I'm going to listen. Where I'm going to be still before God. And I'm going to listen. Where I'm going to be able to walk softly. And hear the Spirit of God. Hear the leaning of God as I've read His Word, as I've sought His heart. And fourth, accountability. Can I tell you this? You know, it seems like every year I have some friend who, minister or non-minister, just somebody I've known for a while, who leaves his family or makes, makes a big mistake, quite frankly. And you know what I found is almost never do they have accountability. Almost never is there someone who's asking them the hard questions. And I've got one guy in my life, and then there's, there's a group of men. Uh, matter of fact, Bob Lyons, uh, I already had an accountability partner. Bob decided I needed some more, which I'm thankful for. And uh, Bob and, and a group of guys uh, about every six weeks get together, and uh, they got ten questions, and they just ask me these ten personal questions that they go down the line, and then they pray for me. You know what? That's good. And can I tell you this? When we're being faithful, when we're walking with Christ, we invite accountability. We don't run from it. When we find ourselves wanting to push it away, castigate it, it's usually either because of pride or because we have a reason. The discipline of the Spirit, if we really want to grow in our faith, really want to hear that voice of God, we're going to need godly counsel and we're going to need people speaking truth and accountability into our lives. God, I don't want that. And that's exactly what James was talking about. It wasn't what they were doing. It's what they were not doing. It's what they were not willing to do. You know, if you're like me, you've had these ethics classes in undergrad or graduate school. And I remember one of these classes, they, they would do this, you know, they'd ask you this ridiculous question and then get you to kind of take sides on it and then you would argue with each other. And I'll never forget, this was one. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman who has tuberculosis. The man has syphilis. They've had four children. One's died and the other three have terminal illnesses. The woman is now pregnant. What should they do? And so you let your values come into play and you, you argue, you take one side, you take the other side. And, you know, typically what happens, most of them come back and they say, uh, you should probably abort that child. That's what they usually would say. And then the professor says, congratulations, you just killed Beethoven. You think about walking softly before God. So many times we're going to use our own wisdom, our own mindset what we think is right, what we think how things will turn out in the end, and we're going to go, we're going to play God in our own lives. I'm going to give you a real-life example that's right here. Last week, the, the Edwards family, we showed them 
or I told some stories, but uh, this is a, a family in our church. Matter of fact, they'll be here in the next service, and they have four children. Um, about five years ago, Sophie, little girl in the front, uh, they had a blood test done, and it came back, and they said, um, your child is, probably has Down syndrome. There are a couple other tests you can do to be certain, but we want you to have this information, and we think you ought to do this test so that you can understand what your options are. And as Sharon said, I, I heard him saying, maybe you might want to get an abortion at this point. And so as they prayed, they said, you know, there was really no decision to make. We believe that God had given us this life as we walked softly before God and hear his voice. It was sure. So we said, you know what, we really don't need that test. We're going to trust him. And if that's what happens, so be it. And then Sophie was born, the beautiful little girl there in the front. Let me tell you, that doesn't happen when we get there in the moment and we try to make spur-of-the-moment decisions. It happens when we are walking daily and softly before God as He speaks truth into our life, as the Word of God speaks truth into our life. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. Some may think, hey, I'm going to make a bundle. There were a lot of people that thought they were going to make a bundle this year that hadn't made a bundle this year. And there are others that think, you know what? My life is going down the toilet and it can't get any better. And this has been a time that God begins to turn the corner. I was talking to a family in here who um, he had had a seizure. And, uh, and because of his seizure, the job had laid him off and told him he wasn't going to be able to come back because it was going to be over six months. So he was losing his job. And we were just praying a couple of weeks ago. And he found out just this week uh, as they went and took legal action that he's gotten his job back. They had three small children under the age of five, mom that worked part-time, just got a, a new home, dependent upon the income. Then all of a sudden, this is all you've ever done for, for your life, and because you're not going to be medically able to, you're fired, and it's over. Now, can I tell you, they've been going through that for six months. You know, and if they just listen to that word, that's the end. I've never done anything else. What are we going to do? And as his small group began to pray for him and listen, he just found out. And in fact, uh, had it gone another week, just a couple more days, that had been it. And here he would have been four years old, the only job he's ever known, losing his retirement. But you know what? God hears and God knows. And you're saying, hey, I'm in that situation right now. <clears throat> Can I tell you this? God is speaking right now. In the economy we're in, God is speaking. It's not that He hasn't been speaking before. It is that often it's been too loud in our lives to hear. But can I tell you, He's speaking. He wants you to walk softly before Him. He wants you to hear Him and listen. He wants to walk you through this valley. He wants to walk you through this time. He wants you to pray. He wants you to seek His glory. Pursue counsel and walk softly. Deo valente. God willing, are invictus unbowed.